Check, check, check. With you, go ahead and grab it and, and turn with me to John chapter 9. Uh, that's where we're going to be uh, going this morning as we continue our journey through uh, the gospel according to John. We've called this series, That You May Believe. Uh, that's not a creative title, um, and I don't, I don't think anybody's ever like, accused me of being a creative person. So anyway, that's, that's just a side note, but that, we, we actually got that title from, from the Gospel of John itself. Uh, and it's, it's a good thing for us to keep that in mind. I need to be better about reminding us about, about what we're trying to communicate here. John tells us as his readers uh, that, that he has a purpose in his writing. Like he's not just writing a history. He's not writing a, a biography. Uh, recently, I, my, I, I purchased this biography about Alexander Hamilton, and, uh, and it, it didn't look as thick online as it, as it did when it landed in our mailbox. And uh, my son, looked, he just handed it to me laughing. He's like, good, <laughs> good luck. And, uh, and so I'm going to whittle away at that for the next four to ten years, you know, and see if we can't complete that thing. But... Um, it, what, he's not trying to write this comprehensive story of the life of Jesus. In fact, he tells us at the end that, that, that there are also many other things that could be written. And then he goes on to say that if I was to write them all down, all the books in all the world uh, would not be able to contain it. And so he's not just writing mere facts. Like He's not just saying, oh, this is what Jesus did at 1030 on Thursday. This, that's not what he's trying to do. He's writing for a reason. He's, not, he's writing he says this in 2031, that these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that you may believe that he is the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's his stated purpose. That's his target. You know, that's what he's aiming for in all of this. And so what that means is that he's, he's making an apologetic here. We don't use that word a whole lot, but he's making an argument. He's, making, he's defending this faith that he holds to. He's making a case and presenting the evidence that proves effectively that Jesus is who he says he is. So let's look to that word now. Would you stand with me? Now, would you stand with me now as we tune our hearts, like as we set our minds, as we set our ears and our eyes, even our souls on the word of God right now? This is John 9. I'm going to start in verse 13 and go through uh, verse 34. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. 
His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that, that you that you and your holy wisdom set aside for us. Uh, that you would give us a day to come together each week, that you would preserve that. And we thank you that you know better than we do the things that we need in our lives. We, we pray now that you would use this time to speak to us. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to my heart, that you would draw me uh, closer to yourself, that you would draw your people closer to yourself. And Lord, that if there's anybody who is, who is still far off, Lord, would you bring them near? And would you do that impossible work? We've seen that you open eyes of blind people. Would you come and open our blind eyes today? Would you come and unstop our deaf ears? And would you come and awaken our souls that we might know you for who you really are? And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We have spent uh, the past few weeks now uh, talking about Jesus as the light of the world. He, he said that back in chapter 8. He said, I am the light of the world. And then he said, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus said that. And in, in, in the verses that have followed that, we have seen how, how that claim didn't really go over well uh, with the people around him. And we're reminded that Jesus didn't just float above the fray. I think at times we see him as he just sort of came and he was born and he had a little halo and everybody just thought, ah, he's this, this is the greatest person ever. Uh, and, and so he just kind of cruised through life and had an easy go of it. But the reality is when he said things, when he said, I am the light of the world, people didn't like that. They didn't like that he said that. And so we're reminded, even in this passage, in one of these famous I am sayings, even in this miracle, that there are people who who did not like Jesus. He was there in the thick of it. Like he got into the mess of life, just like, just like what you experienced. And so Jesus made that statement. It created some tension, uh, to say the least, uh, not just with people in general, but particularly with the religious leadership of the day. And it reminds me that light, 
but that light always has a way of doing that. Light has a way of creating conflict with the darkness because light reveals what's really there. Listen, my wife has watched, um, I'm not exaggerating this, this is a true story. My wife has watched every single episode of Dateline NBC in 2020 that has ever been produced. Um, every single one of them. She, she, she knows, and it's always the husband, by the way, like every single one. There's no plot twist at the end. He killed her, definitely. Okay, that's how they all end. But uh, she's seen them all, and so uh, when she started kicking me the other night and uh, telling me that she heard someone climbing the back steps, that she was hearing footprints, footsteps coming up the back steps onto our porch... Um, I knew we were in for something because because she doesn't because she knows right she's seen this story play out and uh, she's all here we go you know this is the one I hope you're ready and I'm going what you know I, I I'm I'm not I'm not ready okay I'm I am not an intimidating presence uh, I'm fully aware of that and so uh, this is this is this is uh, I had not been training for this. Uh, just full disclosure, I've not been prepping my family for what to do in case of an invader coming into the house. We still haven't done that. I uh, need to. Um, if you guys could have seen me sneaking through from our bedroom to the back door just in full-on like ninja stealth mode, I would never be able to live that down. Um, made my way totally undetected through the home. Very proud of myself. Uh, and I, I'm convinced that, that, that this is going to be my moment. That this is when I'm going to prove that watching all those action movies had a reason, right? Like, I'm going to earn, I'm going to earn it here. Uh, our wiener dog is in full-out dachshund mode, just hiding under a blanket, just as useless as can be, you know. And so I, I'm drawing this way out longer than I needed to. Anyway, she's just hiding over there, and I'm like, all right, here we go. It's go time. So I get to the back door. I reach up, I flip on that light switch, and, and there I am, man, just face to face with this intruder. I'm serious, this invader who has approached our... I get very like, I use high language when talking about people coming onto our back porch at night. This is an invader, right? Not, a, not just a criminal. Anyway, um, flick on the light switch, I'm there face to face. I have the upper hand, light has exposed this creature in all its glory... And, uh, and she, okay, this invader, she, yes, she is caught, this mama deer uh, who had come up onto our porch. Uh, and Laurie had said, I think I hear two sets of feet. And now it all made sense, right? <laughs> like, yes, uh, uh, one deer, two sets of feet, comes up on there just trying to eat the flowers by our back door. Um, Light exposes the truth. All of the fear, all of the, I mean, man, I was ready to, and I didn't sleep the rest of that night just visualizing what I would have done, you know, <laughs> if it had really been something to take care of. Uh, light reveals what's there. Listen, what we know about this passage is that culturally speaking, the people there in John 9, they were incredibly religious. I mean, hyper religious folks. And I don't mean that they went to the synagogue on Saturday. I don't mean that they might have said the blessing before they ate their chips and salsa at San Jose. That is not what I mean. What I mean is that they took their religion seriously. Like it was the foundation, not just for um, 
what they did on one day of the week. It was foundational for how they lived every single day of their lives. It formed the bedrock of nearly everything that they did as a people. And so where in a lot of ways the Christian church, the Christian church today seems to be selling out to the culture, the Jews in the days of Jesus demanded that the culture conform to their religious ways. And we see it here. Look at who the neighbors bring the guy to. The neighbors encountered this now seeing blind man. They didn't take him to a doctor to verify. They didn't take him to his parents. They didn't take him to a civil magistrate. They went and they took him to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the most religious. They were the most religious. They weren't just the varsity team, man. The Pharisees were the starting five, okay? They're the ones that everything came down to. And what we see in verse 14 is that the problem isn't so much with the healing itself, but the timing of the healing. And this has been the case with Jesus throughout the Gospel of John. And it plays out here. Again, we're told there in 14, now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. That's a new detail in this story. We didn't get that last week. We didn't know that in the early part of this. And the fact that Jesus made mud, the fact that he, they would have called it kneading, the fact that he took water and he took earth and he kneaded it together and made mud, that was a violation of their Sabbath principle. It's a literally, it's written in one of their 39 rules that they had for Sabbath observance. And so they were upset with him. And their conclusion was that this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. In his commentary on this passage, William Hendrickson He calls this the battle of syllogisms. Uh, Syllogisms is a way of rationalizing. It's a logical formula uh, working from a starting premise to a conclusion. And there's a simple, their starting premise, the major premise in this whole story is that uh, this man, Jesus, does not keep the Sabbath. That's the starting premise, that this man, Jesus, does not keep the Sabbath. The secondary or minor premise is that... uh, is that, again, uh, since he does not keep the Sabbath, he cannot be from God. That's their logic in this whole thing. It's it's basic algebra. It's what we teach our kids. And I don't know, they probably do algebra in like fifth grade at this point. But when I was in like ninth grade and we learned algebra, that's what they taught you, that if A equals B and B equals C, then A also equals C. And so if this man does not observe the Sabbath, he cannot be from God. And the problem here is that while the conclusion might be logical or even rational, it doesn't make it right. And that's an important thing for us to remember. Just because something makes sense doesn't make it right. And the truth, okay, what is right is what we are concerned with. We want to know what is true. You see, the fatal flaw in their conclusion begins with what they mean by the Sabbath. On the surface, it's a true statement. All people who are from God keep the Sabbath. We would agree with that. We would encourage that. In fact, we hold even today that the Lord's Day is the Christian Sabbath. That's the way we treat Sunday. We believe that that Sunday, the Lord's Day, is the day that is to be set apart, is to be unique, one in seven, that we set it apart to be kept holy unto the Lord. And so on the surface, we could agree with what they say. But that's not what they mean. You see, what the Pharisees mean is that all people from God observe our Sabbath regulations. That's what they mean. That if you're from God, you will do what we say you're supposed to do 
on the Lord's day. And since Jesus doesn't follow our man-made preferences, he doesn't follow our new law, he cannot be from God. And so since they start from a flawed premise, they inevitably land in in the darkness of a flawed conclusion. And even among some of them, we see this, by the way, you look back there, we see that there's an awareness that their logic might be off. We see it right there in verse 16, where we're told that others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? You see, there are some of them sort of sort of looking at this and going, yeah, I mean, I hear you, I hear, and it even makes sense to me. But that doesn't change the fact that we have a man who was blind, who, who now can see. You see, facts are stubborn things. Facts are hard-headed. This miracle in self is a logical impossibility. It doesn't make sense, and yet here it stands before them. And what this expression of light, we would call, that's what I'm calling this man, he's this expression of light, what he's doing here, as the glory of God is being displayed in this miraculous healing, is he is exposing the darkness of empty religion. Jesus is shining the light of God's glory through this man who is now a living witness to the impossible. And it's now burst into light in the midst of the darkness of religion without any faith. All they have is their tradition. All they have are the basic assumptions that they carry about how things are supposed to work. And this blinds them to the truth that's literally standing there right in front of them. They are blind to the reality that God works in ways that defy our worldly wisdom, that ways that defy our logic, that cannot be explained. We see this throughout the Bible as God uses what's weak in the world to shame the strong. We see it in Exodus when God calls Moses. You hear them claim Moses in this passage, right? We, we follow Moses. We are disciples of Moses. Well, Moses didn't really start out all that great. When God called Moses, he was a guilt-laden shepherd with a debilitating stutter, and he was called to go in front of the most powerful man on earth and tell him to let God's people go. We see it in 1 Samuel 16 when God chooses David to be the king in the place of Saul. Saul had been the big, ruddy, powerful warrior king that Israel wanted, and God goes and chooses David, the little harp-playing shepherd boy who's out in the field. His own dad, when Samuel comes to identify the new king, doesn't even think to bring David in the room. David's just left outside. Are you sure there's not another son? No, this is all of them. I mean, I don't know how bad it has to be for your dad to not even claim you to a prophet of God who clearly knows there's somebody else there. And finally, reluctantly, Jesse brings this little boy in front of Samuel who anoints his head with oil, and that's who God chooses to replace the warrior king Saul. And we know that it's through his power, through the work of God's power, that David now becomes the king of Israel that David becomes this historical warrior king that we know. But that's not how he started out. He started out as the weakling. He started out as the ignored one. While the brothers were out hunting game, David was out there watching the sheep in the field. Being a shepherd has never been, at least in Palestinian and and Israeli history, has never been a, a prestigious position. 
He was the weakling who was sent out there. He was the weak one who was told to stay outside where he belonged. This is what God does. He takes those who are weak and he makes them strong. He takes those who are helpless and he helps them. And I want to be honest, this is encouraging to me. And it should be for you. He takes those who are marginalized. He takes those who are ignored and he makes them instrumental. He takes the little children and he says, let them come to me. And he works through them to teach the adults. He takes those who are blind and he gives them eyes to see. And we see it here with this man. God comes in, Jesus comes into this man's life and he takes this man who was born blind. He takes this outcast, he takes this beggar, right? The helpless man and, what, and he helps him. He helps him. He reminds us of what the psalmist declared in, in Psalm 120, that our, our help is in the name of the Lord. He brings light into the darkness and he transforms this man who previously had lived a life in darkness. He transforms him into a beacon, a beacon of light. He transforms this man into an instrument to expose the darkness of Israel's re- religious leaders. Light reveals what's there. It exposes the character of these religious people who have their principles and who have their standards but do not have any faith. They're religious, but they do not have faith. These are the people who go to the temple because it's the place to go, man. That's why we go there. They give because they believe that it will get them in good with God, right? The bowl comes by, I better give, or God might do something bad to me this week. I mean, there's, and and some of you will, you'll recognize that way of thinking. They sacrifice because it will somehow put God in their debt, that he will now owe them, that it will somehow merit his good favor, but they have no faith. And as R.C. Sproul has said, religion without faith is actually a deadly thing. We also see that the darkness doesn't go down without a fight. It's when the light begins to extend out. That's that's when the battle really starts. We see it in this man. You know, when he was first questioned, all he knew in verse 11 was that this man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. That, that was it. That's all he knew. This man named Jesus, he threw some mud on my face, which was bizarre and weird. And he told me, you go and you wash and, and you're going to be able to see. And he went and he washed and he came back seeing. That's all he knew. That's all he knew. But when the Pharisees began to question him, began to challenge him, accuse him and really just attack him, we see a progression to the point in this man's story whereby in verse 17, he's declaring that Jesus is a prophet. You see, the more the darkness rages, the brighter the light begins to shine against that backdrop. And we begin to understand that not only does the light expose what's really there, we see that the light is relentless. You see, the light is stubborn. I said earlier, the truth is a hard-headed thing. That's true. Facts get in the way of a lot of good stories, right? And what God is doing here is he has taken this man who was born blind and he has given him, he's given him eyes that see. And he's actually exposed through him the blindness of the world around him. He's put this walking, talking, living, breathing testimony of his power to create and recreate and transform even the most impossible darkness 
This is what light does when we encounter it. It exposes the areas of our hearts that need to be exposed. When I played uh, high school football, uh, we'd come in after every game, and, and uh, the whole team would come in, and you'd break into offense and defense, and the offense would watch the game film of the offense, and the defense would watch the game film of the defense. And, and what we would do there is we'd sit, and we'd see exactly what we did on every single play that we were on the field. You'd see every, everything you did right. You'd see everything that you did wrong. You'd be, you'd be right there. It was, it, was, it was there on the screen for everyone in the room to see. Because uh, the coach would always say, tape doesn't lie. Sometimes those film sessions were a lot of fun. I mean, sometimes. You'd, you'd see success, right? You'd see the good block. You'd see the good catch. Sometimes they, they, they weren't as fun. You'd see you getting pushed out of bounds through your teammates and into the water cooler. You'd see uh, the drop. You'd see the slip and fall. You'd see the time where you didn't make the catch, but you actually ran the wrong route and the quarterback threw it to the other team. You'd see all that. It's all, every single one of those, by the way, is real experience. Um, sometimes it was like having the spotlight shined on your mistakes. And you can't hide. You're there in the room and everyone can see it. And you are exposed. That's what the light does to us. It exposes those areas where we're blind. It exposes our prejudices. Like we see that in the Pharisees. It's what drives them crazy. The light exposes our fears. We, we, we see that with the man's parents who didn't want to lose their place in the synagogue. They feel threatened and so they're going, I'll let him speak for himself. Don't ask us. All we know is he was blind. We don't know anything else. Talk to him. The light exposes our fears. It shows us where we're weak. It exposes our prejudices. It exposes those places we'd prefer to keep hidden. We see it in our lives as the relentless light shines into the darkness of our own hearts, showing us our sins. I, I won't ask you, to stand up and start confessing your sin. But I'll, I'll just, for the sake of today, I'll, I'll use me as an example. And hopefully this will liberate you a little bit. The light shining in my life reveals that I still cling too closely to the things of this world. You're like, man, that's a safe one. Come on. What it reveals is that my identity, is that I'm constantly tempted to find my identity and things that are safe, things that are comfortable. I don't want to risk anything too much for the kingdom that might disrupt my schedule. I don't. My, my heart naturally says, man, don't, don't give that up because you'll never get it back. You'll never get back that hour. you never get back that, that two hours. Don't stop that car and start that conversation because you'll never get out of it. I, I believe I want to see the gospel go forth. I, I really do. And I want to see people liberated from the shackles of sin. But I want to be comfortable more. The light shining in my life reveals that in my pride, I still want to keep the glory for myself and give God the leftovers. I mean, I, I'm serious. That I that I want to receive praise and adulation more than I want to see people scream and shout praise to God. Uh, that, that, that does at times still mean too much to me. 
And so I'll give God the, the leftovers. I might give money to the church or charity just as long as they don't disrupt my standard of living. That's what that looks like. I won't give to the point where it's uncomfortable. I want the steak. I want the potato while he gets the scraps left over for the dog, right? That's, that's, what I, that's the way I treat God a lot of the time. The light reveals that I think far too much about life in this world and far too little about eternity in heaven. It was C.S. Lewis who said this. He said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. That was quoted in a book called Crazy Love by a guy named Francis Chan. That book made me cry three times this week. Listen, being exposed is a good thing. The truth is a good thing. It's liberating not to have to hide. It is in his grace and mercy that Jesus shines the light of truth into my life, exposing me to the me that he has known all along. His relentless light destroys my illusions, allowing me to know the truth of the darkness and setting me free from the fear of man because I've been exposed by the light of a holy God. That's what the psalmist talks about in in Psalm 111 where he declared that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's understanding that the God of the universe, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who spoke those things into existence, that he sees me, that he knows me, and that by his grace in Christ, he welcomes me into his family. As long as we only understand our sin is theoretical, we will only know salvation as a possibility. But Jesus wants more for this man. He wants more for this man than just for him to be able to see the light of day. He wants for this man to know the light of light. Look back at verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see... Your guilt remains. We see no indication that this man had run around all over the city telling everybody about Jesus. There's no indication that he did that. None, none whatsoever. Uh, he didn't run about. He didn't run around doing that. By all accounts, he went about living like no longer blind, but living his life now able to see. Even when they pressed him for answers, if you look at that, if you look at, we were talking about earlier, this is kind of like a trial. It's like a courtroom as they're interrogating this man, coming after him. All he knew at first was this man called Jesus. That's what he said. This man called Jesus. He put mud on my face, told me to go take a bath, and now I can see. In fact, one of the great declarations of honesty in this passage is his cry, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. That, that's really all he claimed. He's just claiming what has happened in his life. He has eyes that see, but up until this point, he does not have eyes to see. And that's where Jesus meets him. He comes to him in that time where it seems like the gift of sight just might actually be a curse. 
He comes to this man who had been healed and he opens the eyes of his heart to see the truth, to see the Son of Man, to see the one who had healed him. And look at the transformation. Did you see that? He said, Lord, I believe, and we're told that he worshipped him. Just in that conversation, he goes from calling him sir to calling him Lord. It's actually the same verse, but when you look, or same word, but you look at the context, you can see the different usage of it. Who is he, sir? To Lord, I believe. And now we get to the real heart of this miracle. You see, we get to the truth in all its glory. It's that, it's that the one who healed his eyes is actually the one who created him from the beginning. And it's that in him, in this man, now the works of God are being displayed. He can see it. He can see this happening. Always an outsider, always an outcast, just sitting at the gate begging for someone to pay him a little attention. Jesus comes to him as he's been cast now out of the community. His life has gotten worse since Jesus healed him. Could you consider that for a second? Now he can see, but now all he can do is see that he's being cast out. Now he just knows where they're throwing him. Before that, he at least had a community who took care of him. Since Jesus came and healed him, he's actually been cast out of that community. That's where Jesus comes and finds him. That's where he comes and meets him. And now this man is not like that deer out on the back porch, just caught in his tracks. Now he's not left out on the back porch to try and eat from the pathetic little plants that we have. Now this man is welcomed inside. He's brought into the home. He's a beloved child of the king. And he's being invited to sit at the table, not as a guest, not as a visitor, but as a son. This is how the father sees his children. This is how he looks on you. He knows all your garbage. You you know that, right? The tape has already been shown. He's seen it all. You're exposed in all your mess. Everything that you are hiding from everybody in this room right now, God already knows that. He knows that. He knows the depth of your heart. He knows the doubts. He knows the fears. He knows the the sins in your mind right now. He knows the ones that are springing into your mind, and I hate that I'm doing this to you. As I'm saying this, you're thinking about the sins that you wish God didn't know. He knows all that. He knows all of that. He knows all the baggage that you bring to the table. He knows every bad decision. He knows all the choices that you've made that still haunt you to this day. He knows all that. He knows all that you have done, and He knows all that has been done to you. He knows all of that. And yet He remains with you through every slip, through every fall, through every trip and stumble. He comes to you and He says, through it all, that you are mine. Not because you're so awesome. Not because that garbage doesn't exist, but because He loves you. Because He loves you. That's the God we serve. You see, by His grace and through His mercy shown to us in Christ, you and I are called into a new relationship with our Father in heaven. And in that, you and I are actually given a new way of seeing the world. It's when we understand our blindness, that when we understand our helplessness apart from God, that we can truly rest in the grace that Jesus provides us. I wonder how many of us are still trying to do this on our own. I'm still trying to navigate through this life on our own power. Now, we wouldn't say that out loud. I mean, some of us might. 
But how many of us are trying to do this on our own? The miracle before us in this passage is not so much that a blind man could be made to see. I mean, that's an impressive miracle, to be sure. But it's that a dead man could be made alive. You see, that's the best news that we could ever receive. It's that God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That's where Jesus comes and meets you, not at your best. He comes and meets you at your worst. That's why we call this good news rather than just news. You see, that's the truth, and that's the gospel. The only question for us is whether or not we believe, whether or not we have faith. Or do we just have our traditions? Do we just have our preferences? Do we just have our religion? Because again, as Sproul said, religion without faith is a deadly thing. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I confess my, my weakness. I confess my failure to trust in you day to day, moment to moment. I still think that I've got to figure it out. I still think that I've got to save the day. I still am tempted to think that somehow I'm going to be able to muster the strength or the intelligence to figure it all out and carry myself through it. God, I have failed myself more times than I could ever begin to count, and yet you still come to me and say, but you're mine. Lord, I thank you for the goodness of of your love shown to us in Christ. I pray that as we leave here today, that we would go into this world and be willing, be willing to live our lives for you. Help that to infect how we think, how we act, how we speak. Lord, let us walk around as beacons of the light that you have shown us. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.